Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, Nehemiah chapters 5 and 6. I think Nehemiah is nothing if not persistent. First he had to face the king of Persia and persuade him to release Nehemiah for an unknown amount of time from his responsibility in the king's court as the cupbearer. Then Nehemiah had to venture a long journey down to Judah, a place he'd never been, and take stock of the poor condition of Jerusalem and Judah. After that, he had to gain the cooperation of the Jews of Judah, rich and poor, to get behind his mission to rebuild not just the walls, but the city of Jerusalem, something tried and failed by others numerous times. Then several local and regional Gentile rulers determined they didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt unless they were part of the process and unless they were given a share of the rule over the city. And when they were unceremoniously refused, they began to threaten the Jews with violent actions. And finally, in chapter 5, the Jewish laborers rose up. They complained that the wealthy Jews were exploiting them by loaning them money and food at usurious rates, confiscating their land when they couldn't pay their debts because they were busy building the walls instead of farming their land. And some of the aristocratic Jews were even taking their children, especially the girls, as bond servants or even as forced wives. Now what we're about to find out is that from the time that Nehemiah heard of the decrepit condition of Jerusalem, this is while he was up in the Persian capital at Shishan, until the wall was rebuilt, it was only six months. Six months. This was a man who knew how to get things done. But of course, rightly so, at every opportunity, Nehemiah made it known that it was the Lord's will that was being done and the Lord had cleared the way and protected Nehemiah and he had orchestrated the situation from on high yet Nehemiah couldn't just sit back and then expect those walls to be supernaturally rebuilt and he certainly didn't expect the Lord to supernaturally inhibit those hostile Gentile rulers from harming and disrupting the Jews from their task rather Nehemiah had to get his hands dirty. He had to take decisive action. And he had to demand that others do the same. This is a rather good picture, I believe, of just how worshipers of the God of Israel are to conduct our lives. And no less so when we face the many challenges and perhaps many enemies that we will encounter along the way. Well, when we left off last time, Nehemiah had asked the priests to come and administer a vow to the aristocratic Jews that had admitted their wrongdoing in burdening the common Jews with debt and confiscation of property and children, and they had repented. The vow was that if they failed in their promise to return everything 
they had already taken from these poor Jews, then they agree that the Lord should take everything away from them and make them like an empty pocket. Evidence is they followed through. Well, let's reread the final part of Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 14 and go to the end. This will be page 1135 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1135. Besides that, from the time I was appointed their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of Artaxasta, Artaxerxes, the king, that is for 12 years, neither I nor my colleagues drew on the governor's living allowance. The earlier governors before me had burdened the people, taxing them more than one and one half pounds of silver shekels for food and wine, and even their servants lorded it over the people. But I didn't because I feared God. And moreover, I put all my energy into working on this wall. We didn't buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. There were 150 leaders and other Judeans who ate at my table, besides those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, and fowl were prepared for me, and every ten days a supply of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of all this, I never claimed the governor's allowance, because the people were already bearing the heavy burdens of their labor. My God, remember favorably everything I've done for this people. We are given some succinct and pertinent historical data here. The exact time span of Nehemiah's tenure as governor of Judah's 12 years. And that time in office was reckoned as starting in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, ending in the king's 32nd year. That would have been from 445 B.C. to 433 B.C., plus or minus a year or two, depending on if one uses the Nisan or the Tishri-based calendar year. And more, he was indeed the official governor of Judah, not merely a diplomat sent by the king or some kind of a temporary advisor. A governor had the right, if not the duty, to collect taxes for the empire, but also other taxes to support himself and his staff. It's not unlike in America, where we have federal taxes, state taxes, local taxes, Tax taxes, and then taxes on that, that are all collected independently and used separately for separate purpose by separate groups of government officials. Feels terrible when I say it like that, doesn't it? However, Nehemiah chose not to collect taxes to support himself or his staff, and also he didn't demand a tax of produce to be taken from the local Jews <clears throat> to feed himself or others that were typically fed at the taxpayer's expense. <clears throat> now it certainly would not have been wrong. It wouldn't have been heavy-handed to have done that. 
However, verse 15 explains that the previous governors had taxed the people to an extreme, thus putting a difficult and unfair burden on them. I want to discuss that for just a moment. The first thing to notice is that Nehemiah didn't show up in Judah to create a new office called governor. This position had existed prior to him and he was merely the latest. That said, it also appears that the office had been vacant for a time. That would explain Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem's irritation at having an official Persian governor in control again since they had been able to lord over the people of Judah in the absence of one. Next we see that Nehemiah was wealthy in his own right. He used his own resources to care for himself and his staff at least as far as food and wine was concerned. This is proof in itself of Nehemiah's high character and his shepherd attitude. And allow me to comment here. Just because, like Nehemiah, a leader is a no-nonsense, pragmatic, not easily deterred person who carries him or herself with an air of authority and confidence doesn't somehow mean that they aren't doing so with a submissive heart towards God or that they're not on a mission to do what is best for those in his charge. Those two attributes aren't mutually exclusive. And Nehemiah is exhibit number one to show how a great leader ought to conduct himself in a godly manner. Weak leadership can be worse than none at all. Wavering and ungodly leadership can be deadly. Well, in verse 16... Nehemiah continues in critique of himself that he kept his head down and he stayed focused on finishing that wall. This was a man with tunnel vision. And that same tunnel vision cut both ways. It allowed him to do the impossible and to rebuild the wall rapidly and under difficult conditions. But it also caused him to overlook the plight of the poor Jewish laborers until they rose up along with their wives to level a withering list of social injustices at not just the aristocrats but at Nehemiah as well. See, There's a reality that's often overlooked about humans who accomplish great things or they become some of our greatest heroes, including our greatest Bible heroes. It is often their flaws that allow them to do what others couldn't. And it will be those same flaws that will often become their downfall in another and different setting. That is why this little phrase we heard in the book of Esther about her having been put into her position before the king for just such a time as this has always meant a great deal to me. What this means is that this is the time for which she was prepared and she was set in place unaware by God for a special service to Him. It wasn't for another time. 
This also means that there likely would not be later opportunities for her to save her people and that under different circumstances those same personal attributes should not be expected to lead to similar results. And and an unlikely intersection of time, space, circumstance, and opportunity has to happen for great people to emerge and great things to be accomplished. So what does that mean for us as disciples of Christ? It means that when Yeshua opens that door and He beckons us to come, He may never ask us again if we refuse to step through it. It means that we likely won't have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to serve Him in the same meaningful way. If when He calls, we say, no, I think I'll just wait for another opportunity to come along, one I'm a little more comfortable with. But it also means that God can use us exactly as we are. Especially when He has ordained the time, the place, and the circumstance. Even if we think our flaws and our deficiencies would make us ineligible. In fact, I think the reason that folks like Elijah and David and Moses were so surprised at the Lord calling them, Who? Me? Lord? Me? was because they well knew their own inadequacies, their own fears. And it was beyond belief. Not only that the God of the universe would reach out to them, but also then assign them to do something that they could not imagine themselves being able or worthy to do. Nonetheless, they said yes. They said yes to God. And the rest, as they say, is history. Nehemiah says he bought no land. No land in Judah. Neither did his inner circle. So even though these were all men with authority and likely of some financial means, none used it for their personal gain in this situation. But I also suspect that in the context of this chapter whereby rich men, including Nehemiah, had loaned money against the farmland of the common Jews, that this is a declaration that although some of the wealthy Jews may have forcibly taken land from the common Jews by forfeiture, he did not. But perhaps the most descriptive statement of who Nehemiah is as a man why his leadership led to success is at the end of verse 15. Because there he says, the reason he did what he did and he refrained from taking from the people is he feared God. It has perplexed me for many years why so many Christians and Christian institutions honestly believe and teach that the coming of Messiah Yeshua was the end of the need to fear God. I'll never understand that. That essentially the best part 
of being a believer is that no matter what we do, no matter how much we disregard His laws and commandments, God would not harm us, and He'll be on our side anyway. Scripture does not agree with that assessment. Therefore, I tell you, fear God. He will be on your side only so long as you are on His side. He will measure us, all of us, by the hidden things of what we truly believe in our minds, in our zeal to know Him and to follow His ways, and in our deeds and in our actions. Fear Him. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. There's no court of appeal. But fearing God doesn't mean to be in terror of Him because we know exactly what pleases and displeases Him. We know precisely His instructions to His worshipers and He doesn't change those instructions because He doesn't change. Nehemiah was the wisest of men who knew that while the end result, a rebuilt wall, was the goal, oh, that process mattered. And that process had to be according to the Lord's precepts, regardless of the difficulties and the challenges that arose. And I think this is a great lesson for us all in every era. Well, this chapter closes by giving us some further logistical information that Nehemiah provided for the food needs for 150 liters of Judah plus various others. In fact, it took an entire ox, six sheep, and some amount of fowl every day. Plus, of course, a constant supply of wine. Yet, as he said, not once did he draw upon the governor's allowance, meaning tax money, to buy these items. Rather, he provided them out of his own generosity, using his own personal wealth, as it must have seemed wrong to him to have been given such abundance by Jehovah only to turn around and take it from those who had so little. Thus, he finishes his narrative by asking God to please see him in a favorable light because of his decisions and his actions. He asks that his labors, his moral motives, and his complete devotion to God and to helping his fellow Jews would be for him an eternal legacy. The fact that we are studying in a book in the Bible named after him I think is proof enough that God answered his prayer just as he had hoped for. Let's move on to chapter 6. Now, just before we start to read it, what we're going to see is that although persistence accompanied with the right attitude can be a virtue, great virtue, as it was with Nehemiah, it can also be used wrongly. And then it becomes nothing more than stubborn rebellion against the Lord and against His purposes. Thus, as the work on the wall nears completion and these four Gentile leaders who have done everything to stop it short of all-out war against the Jews, they now change their tactics. And they decide to try to subvert Nehemiah personally. 
So let's read chapter 6 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it begins at page 1135. When it was reported to Sanblat, Tovia, and uh, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that not a single gap was left in it, although up to that time I hadn't yet set up the doors and the gateways, Sanballat and Geshem sent a message, sent a message to me which said, Come, let's meet together in, the village, in one of the villages of... Got pages sticking together here. You ever have that problem? of the Ono Valley. But they were planning to do me harm. So I sent them messengers with this message. I'm too busy with important work to come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? They kept sending this sort of message to me four times. I answered them the same way. Now the fifth time, with the same purpose, Sanvalat sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand in which it was written... It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it too, that you and the Judeans are planning for a revolt. This is why you are rebuilding the wall, and that you intend to be their king, in similar words. And moreover, that you have also appointed prophets to proclaim about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. A report along these lines is now going to be made to the king. Now, come now, therefore, let's discuss this. And I sent him this answer. Nothing like what you are saying is being done. You're making it all up in your head. They were all just trying to scare us, thinking this will sap their strength and keep them from working. But now God increased my strength. Now one day, when I went to the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahet Avel, where he was confined, he said, let's meet together in the house of God inside the temple and let's shut the doors of the temple for they are going to come and try to assassinate you. Yes, they will come at night to kill you. And I replied, should a man like me run away? Can a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I refuse to go in. Then I realized God had not sent him, that he was making this prophecy against me and that Tovia and Samvalot had bribed him to say it. He had been hired to frighten me into following his suggestion in the sin so that they would have material for their unfavorable report about me and could taunt me with it. My God, remember Tovia and Samvalot according to their deeds. Also the prophet Noadiah and all the other prophets that are trying to intimidate me. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about it and the surrounding nations became afraid, our enemy's self-esteem fell severely because they realized that this work had been accomplished by our God. And during this same time, during this same period of time, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tovia and Toviah kept sending them replies. For there were many in Judah who had sworn allegiance to him because he was the son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of Arach, 
and his son Yochanan had been taken as his as had taken as his wife the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berachah. There would uh, they would even praise his good deeds in my presence, and they passed on my words to him. And Tovia kept sending letters to intimidate me. Chapter 5 was sort of a, a timeout from the wall building report to deal with some, some matters on internal affairs and administration problems. But now we return to the issue of dealing with Judah's enemies and of their determination to wreck Nehemiah's efforts to revitalize Jerusalem, the hub of Jewish life, the center of Jehovah worship. And as the chapter opens, the wall was rebuilt to a point and the various segments assigned to various groups and families were completed and they were joined together. What remained was for some of the enormous wooden gates to be hung. Now in hindsight, we can readily see that both chapters 4 and 5 sort of detoured away from the actual wall building to inform us of the political and of the social challenges that of course accompanied such a monumental community effort by noticing that the final words of chapter 3 were, so we kept building the wall which was soon joined together and completed to half of its height all the way around because the people worked with a will. So, notice, the final words of chapter 3 connect now with the opening words of chapter 6 explaining that the wall was rebuilt and there were no gaps. My point's twofold. First, Bible narratives often have a main story that examines the most outstanding aspect of an event, in this case, rebuilding the walls. And then the story pauses, and the narrative goes back to explain a different aspect of the same event in order to give us some additional context. And then the main story resumes. My second point is that even though chapter 6 reports that the wall was rebuilt and it had no gaps, it was by no means a completed wall at this time. Rather, it was only half the height that it was before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And only half the height it needed to be for proper protection. However, it was now high enough to offer considerable protection against, oh, thieves and marauders, and to allow a reasonable defense of the city provided there were sufficient watchmen on guard. How high was it? Probably around 15 feet. Well, this first-hand information is given to us in the context of the primary enemies of Judah, Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem, having learned that the wall now had no gaps. And we also hear that the other enemies noticed it as well. So we begin to understand that for reasons unmentioned, Judah was surrounded by enemies who hated them. And that for all these enemies, the reconstruction of the protective walls around Jerusalem, well man, that was bad news. The bottom line is the Jews had pulled off the impossible. 
And they had done it against the strongest political pressure of the enemies at a time when they were not a sovereign nation. But for these enemies, they they may have lost, but it was only the end of round one. Round two would see a change of tactics in which the goal would be to render Nehemiah ineffective or perhaps, as I think, dead. Once again, pointing up the importance of leadership. These enemies knew that without Nehemiah at the helm, the results would be what they'd always been. A zealous start to rebuild, followed by disinterest and failure. So in verse 2, these enemies propose a meeting between themselves and Nehemiah. They didn't give a reason. Nehemiah smelled a rat. And since we're not given their reason for wanting to meet, and we have only Nehemiah's response, then some Bible scholars think there may actually have been a sincere desire from Sanvalat and the others to find a way to reconcile. However, there are always those who ignore what God tells us in His Word about the nature of humans and continues to believe instead in a supposed inherent goodness within humanity. When we follow Nehemiah's story from beginning to end and we comprehend this inexplicable hatred of the Jews by the Arabs and others who live nearby to Judah, a hatred, by the way, it's only increased until this day. And when we believe the scriptures that show us that this hatred was prophetic and it was spiritual in its source, I find it ludicrous to consider any possibility other than that these enemies fully intended on luring Nehemiah to a meeting and probably assassinating him. Now no doubt Nehemiah figured out their malicious intent of nothing else but the proposed location of the meeting, the Ono Valley. The latest archaeological findings seem to point to Ono being in the coastal plain up near Phoenicia. If these enemies were so intent on reconciliation, why not meet in Jerusalem? Where Nehemiah would feel safe and have a reasonable chance of being protected. After all, who were the aggressors here? It certainly had not been Nehemiah and the Jewish people. They just wanted to build a protective wall and left to live and let live. But even suspecting the evil that was meant against him, the royally trained Nehemiah didn't answer harshly. He merely said he was too busy working on the wall. He didn't accuse them of anything. But he did ask the question why they want this meeting. As it says in verse 3, I am busy with an important task. I cannot go down. Well, why should the work stop to go down to you? See, this might sound a little bit sarcastic to us. It wasn't. It was just simply a matter of fact. He's busy. His task is important. They haven't even given him a purpose for the meeting. But they wouldn't take no for an answer. They kept sending him this same message over and over again four times. Each time he replied in the same way. And since Sanvalat, no doubt his allies, finally figured out that Nehemiah wasn't going to be intimidated into coming, they now try another approach. We're told in verse 5 that another letter was sent. 
to try and accomplish the same purpose. Get Nehemiah to leave the safety and security of Jerusalem and to essentially place himself into the hands of the enemy. The latest message came in the form, we're told, of an open letter. Now what exactly that means is unclear. Likely it just means it was unsealed. And all who handled it had the opportunity to read it. And when we see that the contents of the letter are false accusations against Nehemiah, that he was intending to use the city of Jerusalem as a place to rebel, he wanted to become king over Judah, the hope, no doubt, was that this would become a rumor that would spread. And once a rumor is widespread enough, it becomes a fact. It's pretty hard to overturn. Now this message goes on to say that Nehemiah had even appointed prophets to proclaim him king. So it was sorry, Sambalot's duty to inform King Artaxerxes of all these developments. Unless, of course, Nehemiah finally agrees to come up to Ono and have a meeting. Now once again, Sanvalot betrays his true intentions. After all, if Sanvalot actually thought that Nehemiah was a rebel, the last thing he'd ever want is to have a secret meeting with him. It would appear as if they were conspiring together. But would Artaxerxes actually believe such a thing about his trusted cupbearer Nehemiah even if he was told? It was entirely possible. Extra-biblical sources explained that he was regularly putting down rebellions all around the Persian Empire. Some were even being led by his family members. So it would hardly be beyond the realm of possibility that Nehemiah would turn against his king. Even so, Nehemiah remained firm and he responded by simply stating that what they accuse him of is false. They're just fabricating it in their imaginations. Interestingly, the liberal Hebrew is from your heart you are imagining these things. The Hebrew word for heart, lev, is used uh, and as with most Bible scholars of the past 50 years, I join, I join them in recognizing that while Lev certainly means heart, it was thought in that era and all the way through the close of the New Testament era that the heart organ was the seat of human intellect, the mind. So the meaning of this statement is you're just making this up in your mind. Now Nehemiah fully understood what was happening and records that this was just another scare tactic hoping to draw Nehemiah's focus away from his mission causing other Jews and Jewish civic leaders to be frightened into thinking that they were about to be unwillingly dragged into a rebellion against King Artaxerxes in order for Nehemiah to become their local king And these suspicions and turmoil would stop progress, not just on the wall, but in the general rebuilding of the city. And all this was happening simultaneously. Nehemiah remarks, and now strengthen my hands. Now this is a Hebrew expression that is variously translated to try and attain a meaning. Our complete Jewish Bible says, God increase my strength. That pretty well captures it since what this is is indeed just kind of a short impulsive prayer 
even though the word God isn't actually there, since it is a prayer that uh, is directed towards God, God's name in there is, is obvious. Just It's implied. So this latest attempt to trap Nehemiah didn't work. Now another tactic is tried. And starting in verse 10, we hear of a scheme to try to get a false prophet to convince Nehemiah to commit an act of criminal trespass against the Lord. Or to simply flee and thus discredit himself. What must not be missed is that this would attempt to use Nehemiah's own people against him in this plot. This can only happen if some Jews in Jerusalem didn't share Nehemiah's vision. They didn't want him as their governor. Rather, they had a useful relationship with all these various enemies. They had their own agendas. They intended on keeping it that way. And they were not going to switch their loyalty to Nehemiah. Well, a fellow named Shemiah is introduced. He makes a suggestion to Nehemiah to meet at the temple and then together they'll go inside and hide. There they would lock the doors to protect themselves against the hitmen, the assassins, hired by Tovia and Sanvalat with the assumption that even Gentiles wouldn't dare to enter. Nehemiah was not allowed by the law of Moses to do such a thing. Only priests could enter the interior of the temple and Nehemiah was a layman. However, it was also a law that a layman could flee to the temple altar, hang on to its horns, and be given sanctuary. But be that as it may, the law altar is located outside the temple in the courtyard. Therefore, while those Jews who were unfamiliar with the Torah, which was pretty much everybody in Nehemiah's time, while they might have seen Shemaiah's suggestion as lawful and logical, Nehemiah knew the Torah. He knew he couldn't do this thing, even if it indeed it didn't mean losing his life. Well, who was this Shemaiah? Why did Nehemiah go to see him? We know nothing of this man. There's no use speculating. Obviously he carried some importance or Nehemiah wouldn't have gone to his home. And what does this mean that Shemaiah seemed to have been restricted to his house? Some think that perhaps he was currently ritually unclean. I don't buy that. Because if he was unclean, the Torah observant Nehemiah certainly wouldn't have gone to him and risked defiling himself. Was it perhaps some sort of a symbolic act, as other scholars claim? Maybe. I suspect that we are encountering a little-known Hebrew expression whose meaning and intent's just been lost to history. Nehemiah, courageous and godly, responds to this proposal by saying that a man like him can't run away. And further, a man like him can't go into the temple. Saying a man like me can't run away is no doubt referring to his leadership role. If he flees in the face of rumor or of danger, what are the other people going to think and do? And if he flees and the people are left leaderless, it's going to be Sanvalat and Tovia, Gentile enemies, who will rule over God's people. You know... 
When I read this, I couldn't help but recall the tragedy of the Costacordia cruise ship in 2012. When an incompetent crew accidentally ran this ship aground off the coast of Italy, where it began to sink and to list badly, the captain and the crew were quick to abandon ship and leave the terrified passengers to fend for themselves. Many drowned. Essentially, Shemaiah's hope was for Nehemiah to abandon ship, to save his own skin, and leave these terrified and confused Jewish citizens to fend for themselves. Thankfully, Nehemiah's godly character would never allow him to cut and run, abandon his people, even if it meant losing his own life. But this same character would also not allow Nehemiah to knowingly violate God's law and hide, along with Shemaiah, inside the temple. Now, I suspect that most of the Jewish people and the leaders would have actually been rather accepting if he had elected to go ahead and do that. After all, who was Nehemiah hurting? Who was he hurting by hiding inside the temple? It may have upset the priests, but it would have caused them no personal harm. Wouldn't it be better for all the Jews of Jerusalem if Nehemiah was able to save himself and remain their leader? See, this is another one of those situations in which no fellow human is harmed or affected. The only person who would be affected is God, and he's merely offended. So, doesn't it seem like a no-brainer to just go ahead, hide in the temple, save yourself, then go make a sacrifice of atonement later for breaking his commandment? See, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. But I wonder how often we have thought processes like this when we come up against a serious problem, maybe even something that's dangerous. And this is the thought process that Shemaiah was hoping Nehemiah would adopt. He didn't. And he emphatically stated that he would not flee and he certainly would not enter the temple. Well, verse 12 shows how Nehemiah quickly figured out the nature of the plot. Shemaiah was a false prophet hired by the enemy to draw Nehemiah into cowardice and sin. And since Nehemiah knew the Torah and he knew God's laws, he also knew that God does not contradict himself. God would never send a true prophet to tell him to violate his sacred commandments. And folks, this is a great lesson and it's a warning to end our session today. If we ever hear a pastor, a rabbi, a Christian leader of any sort explain why doing something that we know is against God's laws, it's a good thing to do under the circumstances. Be skeptical. Especially if it's something that could be self-serving. Be skeptical. And now I'm going to meddle a little bit more and probably draw a little fire for it. It is against God's laws for Israel to give up land to the Palestinians. 
It's against God's laws for there to be a so-called two-state solution because the pagan state will inhabit part of the promised land. It's against God's laws for Israel to allow Islam to control the Temple Mount and to worship their false god Allah and to have shrines and a mosque up there on the holy site of His Temple. It is against God's laws to divide Jerusalem and to give part of it to Muslims or anybody else for that matter. And yet Jewish leaders one after the other do so and they're applauded for it. Often by other Jewish religious leaders. American political leaders who claim to be Christians, church leaders who claim to speak for Christianity are also sometimes among those who do the applauding in the name of love, peace, and Jesus. It was not easy for Nehemiah to stand against the plots and the efforts to get him to submit to fear, to self-interest, and to turn a blind eye to God's laws and commandments for the sake of peace and compromise and agreeing with the majority. As we learn here, it wasn't only Nehemiah's enemies. It was many of his own people who sided against him. And they were happy to trespass against God, to violate the Lord's commandments, to share control of Jerusalem with pagans if it brought quiet, easier living, maybe even a measure of prosperity to the land. We'll continue with chapter 6 next time.